Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good evening, church. Uh, I'm Les Crawford, one of the elders here, also working full-time with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And it's my privilege to share tonight with you about Islam. We're doing a series, series on worldviews. And we've had two nights so far. Uh, Carl on the first night presented primarily the Christian worldview. And then last week, uh, he spent some time, he did a great job looking at the subject of Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he highlighted some key distinctions from biblical Christianity, the differences between the two. Their view of God, their view of humanity, their view of salvation were clearly contrary to the Bible. And to say radically different would probably be an understatement, actually. Yet, when you deal with Mormons, when you interact with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they tend to want to present themselves as within Christendom, within the Christian world, in the Christian faith. They kind of want to identify with us. Islam is a little bit different to Mormonism. Strangely, though, the beliefs of Islam are closer to biblical Christianity than the claims of Mormonism. Yet, Islam demands separation from the Christian faith. It wants to be very, very clearly different from Christianity. Uh, In fact, uh, one of the reasons why Islam appears in the news often is because they're hostile to Christianity. Now, that may be in radical extremes like ISIS, or it may be in persecution of Christians. And sometimes you'll hear... And not always in the mainline media, but often in the Christian sort of uh, Facebook posts or perhaps you follow some particular organizations and you'll hear about Christians who've been martyred. Uh, They've been beheaded because of their faith. And often that's in an Islamic context where that occurs. And so this violence against Christianity is a very different approach than Mormonism, which tends to be walking alongside of Christianity, have full acceptance Whereas Islam certainly doesn't want to be in that place. So it kind of seemed weird in some respects that the closer they are to Christianity, yet the further they want to be. I hope as we finish tonight's message, you'll kind of get a better understanding of why that is the case. Now, just as a caveat before we begin, uh, Islam, like most large religious groups, is not completely holistic. In other words, it has various strands. And we don't have time tonight to track down every strand of every group and identify who they are and what they believe and what they practice. And so I'm basically going to do an overview of Islam. And uh, these general truths and general practices apply to Muslims in general. There may be some exceptions to that, but we'll leave that to other times. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look at four things, but they have quite a few sub-points. So fasten your seatbelts, we're going to get going and move pretty quickly. So I want to have a quick look at the history of Islam, very brief. I also want to have a look at a summary of their key beliefs, 
And then an overview of their essential practices. And then I want to give you some guidelines for engagement. Engaging because, uh, as you may know, this is the second largest religion on planet Earth. You can swap slides now. 1.8 billion or more followers. That is 25% of the world's population identify with Islam. That's a huge number of people, isn't it? And you might think, well, such a big group must have a very long history. And the reality is they don't have that long a history. They are the most recent of the large world religions. Their origins go back, if you took it in this couple of centuries or a couple of millennia, you're really talking about 1,400 years. That's where they go back to. Christianity goes back to 2,000 plus years. Judaism goes back to 3,000 plus years and you can go into other world religions and look at their history. I mean, this is actually a more recent version of a world religion. So, uh, by the way, Islam typically, uh, well, in terms of interpretation, means submission. Uh, and it's a very powerful part of this religious faith, is submission. Submission to God's will expressed through the writings of Muhammad, particularly the Quran. And they have a, a line of prophets uh, going all the way back. They'll claim to go to Adam, in fact, uh, including someone like Moses. They'll include David. They'll even include Jesus as one of their prophets. But the truth is, it really began with Muhammad and his influence in the 7th century. He was born in Mecca around AD 570. And when he was a young man, he went to some remote caves and spent time there, and he received visions. And one of those visions was from the angel Gabriel in AD 610. And Gabriel imparted him a series of messages, uh, which are basically dictated to him. And he's reputed to have written them down. And as they're compiled, they form their holiest of holy books, the Quran. And the main point that's communicated overall is that there is only one God and that God is the only God to be worshipped. And that God does not have any representation of his existence. There's no room for idols in Islam. And so Muhammad, wanting to share the things that he had received in the city of Mecca, wanted to have people follow what he had discovered about God. But he wasn't very well received. And the reason he wasn't very received is because Mecca was actually a polytheistic culture. They worshipped many gods and they did so through idols. And so initially, once he got persecuted and suffered death threats, it was time to leave town. We've got to get out of here because it's not safe. And so he fled to a place called Medina. It was called Yathrib in, the tay, uh, in his day. And that was about 400 kilometers north of Mecca. And this is in AD 622. And this is actually called the Hira, the migration or the escape. And it actually marks the beginning of the Muslim calendar. So if you look at a Muslim calendar compared to, say, our calendar, it doesn't begin in AD. It actually begins with this event in Muhammad's life. Now, in this place he actually gathered a significant following. In fact, his following became so significant 
that he returned to Mecca, he conquered Mecca, destroyed its polytheistic religion, and established Islam as the dominant religion in the whole Arabian Peninsula. And this is an amazing turnaround in a very short period of time. And it was primarily done by military force. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. So in AD 630, now a huge transformation is taking place in the Arabian Peninsula, and Muhammad dies two years later in 632. So you think, that's the end of it all. You know, the leader's dead, everything will die. Uh-uh. Because Islam grew. It marched across North Africa. It actually went into Europe. And if it wasn't for the Battle of Tours in AD 732, they would have kept on marching through Europe. And so in southern France, a military battle took place. And actually, for our sakes today, European civilization was saved from the march of Islam by this particular conflict. Now, it took some more significant amount of time before Spain and Portugal, who'd been overrun by Islam, were released from its grip. And then, not only going westward, but Islam went eastward. In East Africa, through Asia, and then places like India, northern India, actually, uh, even as far as Indonesia. It's not surprising that Indonesia is the largest Muslim population outside of other places right on our doorstep, right north of us. Huge Islamic nation. And so the common means of progress was military conquest. But like all faiths, they also used other means. One of them was trade. You know, you can persuade people at times with your message, or you can compel people at times by force. Now, if you were a conquered people at this time, and even in modern times, uh, basically the only safe option was a forced conversion. Uh, if you welcomed Islam, if you embraced Islam and submitted to Islam, then you were part of the family. And you would have all the privileges that went with being Islamic. But if you didn't, then there really was only one other option, and that was death. Unless you were the people of the book. Now, the people of the book were Jewish people and Christians because they had the previous writings, which I'll talk about in a minute. They were actually people of the book. The Bible, Old Testament or Old and New Testament. Now, they could coexist with Islam by the payment of a tax. Now, it didn't mean they were equals within the culture. They were basically slaves, but they weren't killed. They had a capacity to remain in their own faith, but they had to pay for it. You didn't convert, you didn't pay the tax, well then you left the planet somewhat brutally, normally by beheading. Now, Islam's influence was curtailed as Europe progressed economically, socially, militarily, militarily, and spiritually, and also globally. You will know, of course, that the European nations, Spain, England, Portugal, the Dutch, they're all colonists. They traveled across the world. And interestingly, with those colonization came the gospel. And so even someone as... Uh, his name just went through my head and out the other side. That happens to me quite a lot now that I'm 64. 
Um, one of the modern atheists would say that the best protection against Islam is evangelical Christianity. Because historically, if Christianity has thrived in a place, Islam has not. And so what happened is Europe expanded across the world, so Islam actually faded. Its influence was reduced. Its influence was curtailed. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was the last major Islamic reality in our world. And they were defeated in the First World War. And the Ottoman Empire was dis disbanded. That was the Turkish Empire. And when that was disbanded, in a sense, Islam was at its lowest point. This is uh, the weakest Islam has been historically since its beginnings. But things are changing. And the reason things are changing is because the West, the European influence, the Christian influence has significantly waned in the world. And we've got things like migration, globalism. And so now with these additional movements, there are Islamic groups in every nation in the world. They're not just limited to the Arabian Peninsula. They're all over the place. And they are proactive. Because one of the goals of Islam is the whole of the world would be under Islam. It's not just a religious movement, it's actually a political religious movement. And so for the world to enjoy the favor of Allah, God, the world needs to come under Islam. It needs to submit, submission to Islam is critical. So what would you have to submit to? What would you have to believe? What would you actually have to, and how would you have to behave if you were to be under the Quran, under Allah, under Islam? So let's have a look at their key beliefs. Now they have five key beliefs, five articles of faith. Uh, some of these are more radical, I guess, from a Christian perspective than others. The first one is God. It's not surprising that this group, like all these groups, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, are monotheists. They believe in only one God. So we kind of agree with them, yes. But this God, as all-knowing and as all-powerful and as sovereign as he is, is not regarded as particularly personal. And as we'll see, even though God is saying, said to be merciful, he isn't considered to be loving and gracious towards humanity. And so monotheistic faiths, the big ones, Judaism and Christianity, uh, sound like they're pretty similar. Uh, they believe that they worship the God of Abraham, because Abraham is one of the great fathers of those three faiths, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. But there's some pretty obvious differences between the God of Islam and the God of the Bible. Now, just to clarify one thing, the word Allah is the Arabic word for God. If you're going to translate the Old Testament or the New Testament into Arabic, you're going to use the word Allah for God. And so it is the generic word for God. Just like if you were doing Greek studies, Theos is the generic word for God. Or if you're doing Hebrew studies, Elohim is a generic word for God. But of course, we know in the Old Testament, God has revealed himself as Yahweh which is a very personal, covenant-keeping identity for God. And so, uh, in one sense, if you say, do you worship Allah? 
if you're Arabic, you kind of say, well, yeah, of course I do. Arab is God. But then which Allah are we talking about? In other words, which God are we referring to? So for Islam, God is one person. Uh, they would very much agree with Judaism. The Shema says, the Lord our God is one. Now, it doesn't mean he's actually just a single person. It just means the unity of the Godhead. But they would say, no, one person only, one God, one person. The Christian faith, of course, teaches that there is three persons in that one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's, uh, when we get to Jesus, it becomes really interesting. The Holy Spirit is not really a person. He's more of the, I guess, the energy or the power or the expression of God. And certainly Jesus is not God, although a prophet and a very significant prophet, even in Islam, not God incarnate. And as I said, although God is considered merciful, words like grace and love tend to be absent. So salvation as a free gift is unthinkable to an Islamic person. A Muslim does not understand, apart from the Spirit's enabling, that salvation is at the cost of God, not something you can earn by your righteous deeds. And that's something to remember when you're sharing with Islamic people that this is just incomprehensible. It does not fit the worldview that they have about who God is and what God is like. And there is no guarantee of eternal reward in Islam unless you happen to be a martyr in a holy war. And then there's a promise which we'll talk a bit about later as well. So they believe in God. They also believe in angels, supernatural beings. God's created the angels, but he's also created another category of angel, which we identify as Satan and the demons. The angels were created from light. This other category of spiritual beings were created from fire. That's radically different to our view, because our view says that all of God's angels originally were holy. They were faithful servants of God, but a portion of that angelic group, led by Lucifer, Satan, rebelled and a third of that angelic host rebelled against God and they are now known as demons. They're similar but not the same as us. And then, of course, they have scriptures. They have four main inspired books. The Torah of Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. The Psalms of David. The Gospel of Jesus, the Injil. And then the Quran. Now, the Gospel of Jesus isn't quite the same as the four Gospels in the New Testament. But they do believe that Jesus was a historical figure, lived as a true person on earth, one of their key prophets. So they have authoritative writings, which include parts of the Bible, as I've mentioned. And these writings come through prophets. Prophets who were near perfect in life and who were protected from all harm. Now, that's not quite the way the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament are presented to us, is it? You know, when you look at Moses, as good as he was, he actually failed God significantly and he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. That's not exactly near perfect. And we look at David, who's also one of their prophets. Well, you know, murder and adultery probably don't qualify for a near perfect life, right? Uh, so their idea of prophet is a little short of the biblical record. And then when you look at biblical prophets, they generally got persecuted 
And many of them were killed. In fact, Jesus, when he was addressing the religious leaders in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 48, he said, you basically, your fathers have killed all the prophets. And you're going to do the same. You're going to actually kill me, and I'm God's biggest prophet of all. So it doesn't quite match up. But the Quran in Islam supersedes all of the previous religious writings. Whether the Old Testament, whether it's the Injil of Jesus, uh, it is top of the tree. It is the latest, and therefore it superseded all the previous. And then you say, well, how then can they say that when there's obvious contradictions between what the Old Testament says, what the New Testament says, and what the Quran says? Well, because those writings have all been corrupted. Now, they've been altered, they've been modified by mainly Christians, mainly people in the church era. And that's why they get away, in a sense, with disagreement. But when you look at the Quran itself, uh, it has a problem of internal contradiction. Uh, and I want to show you two particular portions of the Quran. This is Surah 929 and Surah 256. So there's quite a lot of verses in some of the sections of the Quran. Uh, these are translated into English for our benefit. I'm not Arabic reading or speaking, so I can't be uh, any more than subject to the quality of these translations, and I believe they're quite accurate. I've checked them against two versions, so they seem to be very much on the money. So in one text, we see that you are to submit to Islam by force. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book, until they pay the jizah, which is actually the tax that you have to pay if you want to stay within your own religion, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So here is, by force, compel people to believe Islam. And then we read in Surah 2, verses 256, There shall be no compulsion in religion. True guidance has been distinct from error. In other words, you will work it out for yourself. You'll discern what is true and what is right yourself. But whoever refuses to be led by Satan and believes in God has grasped the strong handhold that will never break. God is all-hearing and all-knowing. So on one hand, we've got compel people to believe by force. On the other hand, we'll just let them believe what they want to believe. That seems a little bit contradictory. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why you get variations in people's understanding of Islam. You know, you often hear that Islam is a religion of peace. Well, you can go to certain verses and affirm that. But you also hear that religion, uh, the Islamic religion is a religion of violence and, and hostility and even killing. And you can go to verses in the Quran and you can justify that as well. And we'll see that near the end. Now, the only language that's acceptable for the Quran is Arabic. So if uh, you really want to read the Quran with the authority of the Quran, you have to learn Arabic. It's very different from Christian missions, isn't it? You know, Islam says, come to God through Arabic. And it's the only real way you can come to get to know the scriptures properly. What we do is we keep spending lots of money sending out people to do translation work to bring the Bible into the language of everyday people, their heart language, while retaining its truth. And it's authority. Uh, that's why all of us here, unless you're reading a Greek and Hebrew Bible, 
you are reading a translation, right? And this translation we trust is authoritative, and we've done a lot of messages on that in the past, uh, because we believe that people need to have the Word of God in their hands, in their language, so they can do what? Understand it and receive it. It's a very different message. Uh, By the way, the way a, a Muslim person treats the Quran is highly respectful. So if you are seen by an Arabic Muslim person or a Muslim convert throwing your Bible onto the chair or onto the bed or onto the table, or onto, they will think that's highly disrespectful of the Word of God. And there is a sense in which that's true. We have to revere this book for what it is, but we worship the God of the book. We don't worship the book, Right? So in contrast to biblical Christianity, we persist in making this message known to everyone, by every means. And we'll spend hours of energy and thousands and even millions of dollars to achieve that. They also believe, as we've seen in prophets, prophets through the ages, Adam all the way through to Jesus and then Muhammad being the last of them. God reveals his message to humanity through the agency of prophets, chosen men. And the most controversial of the prophets is actually Jesus. Now, the reason he's the most controversial is because the Quran has a a lot to say about Jesus that we would go, Amen! Amen! This is great! This is in the Quran! And by the way, that's a very good way of approaching an Islamic person with the good news of Jesus. You see, the Quran affirms that Jesus had a miraculous birth. He was virgin born by the woman Mary. You find that in Surah 3, verse 46. He's identified actually by his mother's name, which is really unique because every other person is identified by the father's name, which indicates that he does not have a physical father because he's what? Virgin born. He's also called Masih, which is the word for Messiah. So you can start ticking all these boxes. Hey, amen, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that. He's also a miracle worker. In fact, he is recorded as being the one who raises the dead. And that's a pretty powerful, miraculous event. And because of his virgin birth, he is regarded to have lived a sinless life. Unlike the other prophets who are near perfect, even though we've got a little bit of a debate on that, this particular prophet is the sinless one. Wow. Now that description would actually exceed Muhammad, who is the founder of Islam. Although in more recent times, they've kind of tidied that up a bit because... It doesn't look good if your key prophet is actually inferior to the Christian's key prophet. Jesus, that doesn't look too good. And so Muhammad is now taught as being sinless. And of course, Muhammad worked a miracle because Muhammad was illiterate. And yet he produced the Quran, which is considered by the Muslim world to be an amazing work of literature. Now, I've only read the Quran as a translation now, we did that as a faculty quite a few years ago at the Adelaide College of Ministries where I worked. And we decided for a term to read the Quran and discuss the Quran and its contents. Now, we couldn't read the whole Quran in that term. It wasn't enough time. 
And one of the things I said to Steve Early, who's one of our faculty members and much more aware of Islam and Arab, and well, Arabic as a language, uh, I said, it just doesn't really seem to be great, ling you know, it's not a great work of literature to me. Is it because of the translations poor? Or is it, I just don't understand Arabic? What is it? And uh, Steve would say, well, probably in part that's true, that you know, translating from one language to another, it does create problems, but it just didn't grab me as having some kind of inherent spiritual authority, as much as I was already committed to the scriptures myself. So, here is Jesus in comparison to Muhammad. But what else do they say about Jesus? Well, he also ascended into heaven without dying. Now, they don't believe he died on the cross. That's a significant gap. And he's coming again for the day of resurrection. So a lot of this, we go, yep, why aren't we on the same page? Well, it's what they don't believe about Jesus that distinguishes us, isn't it? You see, Jesus was merely human. He was not divine. And if you use terms like son of God, they are blasphemous to an Islamic person. God does not have a son. Jesus is a great prophet, but he isn't divine. And Jesus did not die on the cross because God would not permit that kind of a tragic ending to one of his prophets. It's sort of contrary. Remember, the prophets don't suffer persecution. They're not harmed. They're near perfect. So Jesus, to be killed in that manner, would be so contrary to what they believe. But, you know, this has significant implications because it means Islam has no atonement for sin. There is no sacrifice on the cross that pays for sin. And Islam does believe in blood sacrifice. In fact, when you do your annual trip, well, not annual, your lifetime trip to Mecca, one of the ceremonies you have to go through is to have a blood sacrifice. And with every newborn son, it probably applies to a daughter as well, although I've only read it for sons, you have to offer a sacrifice. And so blood sacrifice is actually integral to Islam. But there is no blood sacrifice that will pay for sin. Because even the Quran says that the blood of animals doesn't deal with sin. Which we agree with, right? The book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But it also says that the blood of bulls and goats or any other animals cannot remit sin, cannot take care of sin. Only one person's blood takes care of sin. Jesus' blood given in atonement on the cross of Calvary. So it's a huge difference between Islam and biblical Christianity. Islam is really a works religion, as we'll see with their practices, versus the grace and the faith that is a part of the Christian religion, Christian faith. The last days, this fifth element in which they believe... Uh, they believe that all of humanity is going to stand before God, stand before Allah, resurrected, facing judgment, and that judgment will determine whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. Now, if you are a Muslim, you have the opportunity of going to heaven. If you're not a Muslim, guess what? There's only one place you go, and that's hell. Now, if you're a Muslim, however... 
there is no guarantee that at that judgment, you will be welcomed by Allah into heaven immediately. Uh, even Muhammad has no guarantee that standing before Allah one day, that Allah won't say, well, you didn't quite make it. Because Allah does have absolute sovereignty. That's one of their key understandings of God. Absolute sovereignty, which means he has the final decision no matter what you've done, regardless of what you've done, no matter how pure your life has been, how perfect your life has been. And the only option that gets you in is if in a holy war, a jihad, you actually die as a martyr. There's a promise that you will inherit then heaven. Most would expect that you would be purged through hell before you'd ever get into heaven. It's a bit like Roman Catholic purgatory in their understanding. Now this is where biblical Christianity is so much better. So much better. You know, we believe in judgment. The Bible teaches us that everyone is going to stand before God one day and give an account of their lives. If you're at the great white throne judgment, you're in trouble. Because giving an account there means that your works fall far short of anything that could earn your entrance into heaven. It will be a place of judgment and loss eternally, cast into the lake of fire forever. But if you're at the judgment seat of Christ, as one who has followed Jesus, then you are rewarded. Your works are presented and those works are tested by fire. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, and you'll see that those works can be gold, silver, and precious stones, or they can be wood, hay, and stubble. You know that wood, hay, and stubble, they do well in fire. They just make more fire. Gold, silver, and precious stones, they do better in fire because they come out purer and more refined. And that is the promise for Christians, that our works will go with us into eternity to be for the praise and the glory of our Saviour. Yeah, there's judgment, but there are different outcomes in judgment. And the good news for us is that Romans 10, 9 to 13 tells us that this life determines the next life. We can actually confess that Jesus is Lord. We can believe that God has raised him from the dead. And we will be saved. And later, Paul says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. That's a certainty for today, for tonight. If you haven't done that, that is an invitation. It's actually a command that you can obey. By faith, you can say, yes, I understand who Jesus was. He's God incarnate. I understand that he's Lord. And I understand that he was raised from the dead because he died on the cross in my place for my sin. So I can know with certainty that I will go to be with him when he comes for me or I go through the pathway of death into his presence. What an amazing difference between Islam, what it offers, its followers, and the Christian faith, what it offers. Well, let's quickly look at their practices. Uh, they basically have five essential practices. They call them pillars of faith. There's the creed, the shahada. There is no God but God, or often saying there's no God but Allah, but that Allah word is God, so it's the same. And Muhammad is the prophet of God, or Allah. You know, statements of faith like this, we're not unfamiliar with. 
We have statements of faith. This statement of faith would be heard as soon as you arrive in the world. Although as a little baby, I'm not sure you'd really comprehend it. It will be read when you exit this world and every day in between. You will have said this statement of faith. It's part of your daily rituals. And if you are to convert to Islam, you will say this in the presence of witnesses. This will be your confession of conversion to Islam. And if you open the Quran, you will say this as well. So it will be constantly heard in your life. There is no God but Allah, God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God, of Allah. We've got creeds and they're very helpful. But you know, they're not mandatory. I don't wake up every morning and have to say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or whatever. But I might find that creeds are really helpful because they explain or they declare faith. Now, we sing some. In fact, uh, I think it was uh, John Dixon who asked the Hillsong to put out a song which was a creedal song so that we could all enjoy singing a creed. And we do. We sing it here at our church. But they're only as authoritative as they express biblical truth. You know, creeds are a tool for our faith. They are not the controlling of our faith. You know, our faith has content. Don't get me wrong. We believe certain things are really important. And we can express them in creeds. But let's make sure they're biblical, not just tradition. What about prayer? They believe in prayer too. Salat. Five times a day you pray. And the sunset and the sunrise kind of dictate the day. So just as the sun is rising, you will pray. Uh, you will then also pray at noon. Uh, and then in the middle of the afternoon, you will pray. And then as the sun is setting, just after that, you will pray. And then just before you go to retire to bed, you will pray. Five times a day, you will be praying. Uh, I would encourage you to be praying five or 50 or 100 or a million. You know, pray often. That's what the Bible says. And when you pray, the first thing you have to do before you pray is you have to wash. Wash your face, hands, arms, feet, ankles in ritual cleansing. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Temple Mount, uh, you'll see that there's a very large, looks looked like a fountain, but it's actually a large vessel for water. And there are all these taps around it and you'll see... Each of the Muslims that are going to prayer will go there first and they'll wash. Then they'll go into the mosque and they'll go for prayer. It's quite interesting that they are very faithful in ritual cleansing. And if you are praying, you would recite Arabic phrases, mostly from the Quran. And you'll be bowing or you'll be kneeling or you'll be prostrating yourself before God. That's how you will be approaching him. So prayer, very, very important part of a daily ritual for a Muslim. It's a very, very important part of our life, isn't it? I mean, we've been praying and fasting for 21 days. Let's hope the 21 days isn't just 21 days. Let's hope the pattern of prayer is lifelong, not just temporary. And it's an essential part of biblical Christianity. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? They asked him, teach us to pray. He taught them to pray. And we're commanded to pray always. 
unceasingly. So it's certainly very integral to our faith. But you know, Jesus made it very clear that outward cleansing was not the big issue. Inward cleansing was what was critical. Uh, And when he dealt with often hypocritical leaders and people like Pharisees, uh, he would talk about them looking great on the outside, you know, your whitewashed sepulchres or tombs, but inside are dead men's, you know, corruption. Yuck. He also addressed the whole issue of meaningless repetition. You know, our prayers are meant to be personal and powerful. And it, Scripture says that the righteous man has an effective prayer life. Not because he's earned it, but because he's in a right relationship with his God. So he is heard, not rejected. Prayer is a part of our lives too. And then almsgiving. There's a cut. Uh, you give a 40th or 2.5% of your income to basically the destitute, to the poor. And it's compulsory. And uh, by the way, the one receiving alms... <coughs> uh, isn't really going to be thankful for it because it's a necessary part of uh, salvation. Uh, There are many places, like Hinduism has karma, and karma means that I'm doing you a favor by allowing you to be good to me because that's good karma for you. So why should I thank you for the fact that you just gave me $1,000? Well, actually, you're better off by giving me $1,000. So it's kind of a, a merit system, and merit systems are notoriously damaging, especially spiritually. Now, outside of Islamic countries, they don't really enforce this compulsion to give. But if you're a devout Muslim, you're expected to actually give. And you might give to Islamic institutions like a mosque or a school. Uh, You might even give through uh, direct means. You might give it directly to the person or the institution, or you might do it through another means. But giving it is important. We are on about giving in Christianity, aren't we? Yeah. But what kind of giving are we supposed to have? Generous? Free will? Voluntary? Proportional? Planned? I mean, there's lots of good texts. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 15. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 3. The Bible is strong on giving. But what is the motivation? Is it to earn God's favor? Well, if you think so, you're going to be sadly disappointed. No, it's because we love our God. Because he's been so good to us as we just sang that song. By the way, most of the songs we sang this evening are blasphemous to Islam. Anything about Jesus' blood and atonement? You're not going to go very far with the Muslim on that score. Fasting. Well, we've been doing it, haven't we? 21 days. Well, not quite yet. Don't know how you're going. I'm doing well. I'm losing weight. It's doing very well. Uh, the Islamic faith has a particular time of fasting. It's called Ramadan. You've probably heard of it, of course. One month of fasting from sunup to sundown. That's a little bit deceptive, I think. Although that's a long period of time, once sundown occurs, it's a free-for-all. There's no need to worry about missing out on food and drink after sundown. You can do as much as you like till the next morning. But in a hot climate, to not have fluids... For that whole day, that's pretty challenging, isn't it? Now, the young are not expected to do this. Pregnant women and 
Women who are nursing children aren't expected to do this. So there are some exemptions. If you're sick, you're also exempt. And if you're a traveler, apparently, you're exempted as well. Uh, and this Ramadan is in the ninth month of the calendar of the year. And that's when Muhammad is believed to have received his first revelation. It's commemorating the month of that revelation that he received back in 610. You know, we like fasting. Well, I'm not sure we like it, but we believe in fasting. Uh, Jesus spoke about fasting, but he did say that don't misuse it. He said, don't sort of put on airs about your fasting. You know, look as if, oh, I'm really fasting. Oh, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. You're supposed to actually be fasting in secret. Nobody's supposed to know. But the church practiced it. You know, they were praying and fasting when they set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that God had called them to. And the reason we've been praying and fasting is because we're seeking God. We're looking for his intervention, for his provision for us as a community, as a church. So let's pray and fast, but let's not make a big deal about it. Pilgrimage, the number fifth, uh, the fifth one, the Hajj. At least once in the lifetime of a Muslim, get to Mecca. You've got to get to Mecca. Now, that's if you are physically able to do it, if you have the financial means and sufficient health. And it takes place in the last month of the Islamic calendar. And you'll need 10 days in Mecca to complete all of the required acts. One of them is a blood sacrifice. Interestingly, you have to dress in a particular way. You all wear a very plain white outfit. Because in Islam, there's to be no distinction between those who are very wealthy or they are very poor. Those who have high status, they have low status. Everybody's equal at this point of holy pilgrimage. No wealth, no class distinctions. Now, if you finish this, which obviously if you take it, you're going to finish it, you'll get the title of Haji. And that will, for some, mean that their sins are completely dealt with. So there is another way that you could potentially be cleansed of all your sins, and that's by completing the pilgrimage. Now, there is one further aspect or expectation of a Muslim. It's not in the five pillars, but it is one that is often called upon and that's jihad, a holy war. And this has often been the focus of criticism of Islam. And uh, often, I think, tried to be pushed to one side and not really dealt with in an appropriate and proper way. Because historically, Islam progressed through military conquest. That's historically undeniable. Now, Christianity hasn't always progressed by voluntary means either. Uh, we've had our bad stories in our history. But it is not a command of Scripture to out and get your enemies by force. In fact, the Bible says that we are to what? Love our enemies. We're to pray for those who despitefully use us, who persecute us. We are to show the love of Christ. We're not to take up arms and violently either defend or overcome those who are different to our faith. We believe in freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of association. Many of these things which are part of historic Western culture have actually come from a Christian perspective. And so... 
this whole thing of holy war is something that we shouldn't ignore. It's not just the radical ISIS groups that may use this because many use the Quran to actually justify their actions of subjugating non-Muslims. And there are two verses I just want to put up on the screen here that indicate this kind of approach. In Surah 9, verses 123, we read that believers fight against those deniers of the truth who are near you, deal firmly with them, know that God is with those who fear him. That's speaking the believers here, of course, are Islamic followers. And then the other text is, so when you clash with the unbelievers, smite their necks until you overpower them. Now, smiting their necks is beheading them. Then hold them in bondage. Then either free them graciously or after taking a ransom until war shall have come to an end. If God had pleased, he could have punished them himself, but he wills to test some of you through some others. He will not allow the deeds of those who are killed in the cause of God to go to waste. So that's your martyr there. So there are texts which are used to justify a violent approach to the spread of Islam and its necessary conquest of those who do not hold to it. And one of the primary motivations behind this is the promise of immediate entrance into heaven if you die in this war. So what can we then take away? As we think a little bit about Islam's beliefs, so we think a bit about its practices, it is a very works-oriented religion. It's a very strict religion when it comes to followers, even though you have moderates. In fact, the majority of Islamic people in Australia would be moderates. But, you know, silent moderation never counters fanatic engagement. And there was a silent majority in the history of Europe, and things went very badly. That silence is not going to help us. So I hope you can see that there are similarities between Islam and Christianity, but I hope you can also see that there's pretty big differences. You know, Muslims do not worship the same God as Christians. Don't ever fall for that one. They don't. They worship a very different God. So how do we reach them? How do we actually present ourselves and the gospel to this very, very religious community, individuals? Well, I have four things I'd suggest. One, it's ultimately a spiritual conflict. You know, Muhammad receiving revelations, I actually believe he received angelic visitations. I don't think that's a whole bunch of made-up stuff. It's a question of which angel is visiting him with what message. And that's a spiritual reality. You know, I, I've talked to people who've worked as missionaries in Islamic places, and Erica is one of our own missionaries who's worked in the Middle East, and it's oppressive spiritually. You know, we're talking about a spiritual conflict. We're talking about a battle for the souls of human beings. And that battle is not won by clever arguments. It's not won by highly skilled debates and great levels of knowledge and information. It's won by God. And the only way that God wins is when we introduce God into the picture. And how we do that is by depending on him. And we depend on him by saying, Lord, you know how weak and how 
ineffective I am personally, but I know how powerful the gospel is and how powerful your spirit is. Won't you please intervene in this relationship that I'm seeking to build with a Muslim friend? And that is the second point. Genuine relationship is the bridge for gospel witness. Cultivating a friendship with the goal in view that this person will become more than a friend, but become a brother or a sister in our spiritual family. Thirdly, we have to live out the gospel. And we should not be ashamed of sharing what you would normally share with your Christian friends. Well, you know, I was reading the Bible the other day and I found this. Or I was praying to Jesus and this is what God did. He answered my prayers. There's no reason why we can't do that with somebody who's very religious. Even as much as you might have an argument <laughs> or some debate over it. And then fourthly, ideally, if you're really going to take seriously trying to reach out to an Islamic person, then you need to know how to use the Quran. And there's a great article, which I have a copy with me, which I've read in preparation for this message, uh, that has some exceptionally good advice on how to reach others who are of Islamic persuasion. One is, show from the Quran that the Bible is the before scriptures and they are actually encouraged as Muslims to read the before scriptures. And the before scriptures are your Old New Testament. They are the before scriptures. That's in the Quran. It's amazing. What I talked about Jesus, that's all in the Quran. And so there's no reason why I can't say, do you know that this is what the Quran said? By the way, most of them won't know. They won't know because they don't read Arabic and they don't get translations. They just taught what they get taught by the Iman or by their tradition. They won't know. And the Quran actually gives credibility to the Bible. It actually gives credibility to those who study the Bible. And, of course, the person of Jesus. And then the critical one for me, beyond the person of Jesus, is the need for forgiveness through blood sacrifice. That is a critical part of what the Quran actually says. And we have the answer to that part. Jesus is the answer. That's Sunday school and it's also tonight. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. So if you're interested, I have a, one copy of that article with me. I'll give you the reference point. There's another book that you might be interested in. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades. Uh, it's a book that we sell as Friends of Israel. Uh, it's $24. I have a few copies here tonight. I read this book last year. It's really, really helpful. Uh, giving you a lot more material I can do in time, but it's politically incorrect, all right? So it's not going to win you any friends. Don't hand this out to your Islamic friends. It won't be the right tool to use, but it might help you. Uh, it was a New York bestseller, actually. New York Times bestseller at the time. So as a people, don't we want to get excited about the opportunity? We have that many around us from the Islamic world. Um, I hope that at university campuses, you're going to run into people who are studying in Australia from Islamic countries. And be confident in the gospel. Be aware of what the truth is so that you can engage meaningfully with those people who need to hear about Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the kind attention that this group of people have given me tonight. And I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts in such a way that we not only know a little bit about Islam, perhaps to be dangerous, but we know you and we love those who don't yet love you. And those in Islam certainly are in that category. So help us as your people to be equipped 
to be ready to go with confidence with the gospel we have, the good news that is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, freely, freely given, received by faith. And I pray that any here tonight haven't yet done that, that your spirit might move them in their hearts to receive Jesus for who he is, Lord, resurrected from the dead, Savior. We ask in his name, for his glory. Amen.